A question. Have you ever wondered how on earth did we end up with so many different kinds of churches? Catholic churches, Anglican churches, Protestant churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, Baptist, Methodist, Anglican. Goodness knows what, yeah? Well, today, listen, if you've ever had that question, if you've ever wondered that, then today, listen up, because today we're going to go through the story of the church. It's a great story, how the church developed and grew. There were wonderful, glorious successes along the way. It's a compelling story, but there are also heartaches. There are also some tragedies along the way. But it's, it's the wonderful story of Christ's body on earth. So today we're asking the question, what happened after Pentecost? Pentecost, of course, is a festival that the Jews celebrate 50 days, Pente, after Passover, or for us, more or less, after Easter. And what's happened up to this is that Jesus, after his resurrection, uh, the last thing he says to his disciples is, go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't get excited, just wait, because you will be empowered from on high. So they're there, they're waiting, and on the day of Pentecost, they're still waiting. And then the Holy Spirit comes in great power. Uh, They begin speaking in tongues, in different languages. There's a commotion in the street. People say, what's going on? Are these guys drunk or what? And Peter gives his speech. Uh, We didn't read it, but it's there in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit, who's been present since the beginning of time, read Genesis chapter 1, is now suddenly present in a new, explosive kind of way. It's an acceleration of God's Spirit, suddenly and powerfully released. God's Holy Spirit, we've spoken of before, is a full member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit is the very breath of God. And God's Holy Spirit draws us closer to God. And that day, 3,000 people come forward and say, we want to know about this Holy Spirit. We want to follow this Jesus. What's it about? Well, that's the main event of Pentecost. But the the other main event of Pentecost is the birth of the church. The church was born on this day. So today we're asking what happened next. So let's dive in and find out. To start with, the church, uh, as John read to us, was a a small group of believers, 3,000 believers, not large, but not large considering the number of believers today. They met in people's houses. Uh, there was, they were characterized perhaps by three things. There was a great sense of awe. Miracles, signs and wonders were being performed in this church. They, were, they rejoiced in this forgiveness and in this Holy Spirit. And also, thirdly, there were a community. There was a deep sense of unity among these believers. So the church is formed on Pentecost Day. In the weeks that follow, they meet regularly. Um, the story's right there, uh, and, it, and uh, we, it gets picked up in the book of Acts, where we read about the story of the early church. And Paul had a major part to play in spreading this church around the Mediterranean, the countries of the Mediterranean. But Paul dies, he passes away. And then the church, but the church doesn't die. The church continues. Second, third, and fourth centuries, the church was guided by a group of men who we call the church fathers. And the church fathers, men and some women filled with the Holy Spirit, brought us the Bible. And they brought us the creed that we just read earlier on. And so through these centuries, the church keeps growing. And in fact, uh, the worldwide church becomes focused in two Two, two cities, two parts of the world. There's a city in the west, Rome, and there's a city in the east, Constantinople, or what's now called Istanbul. 
These are the two worldwide centers of the church, the two centers in the world where authority and teaching and learning is focused. One is Latin, in Rome one is Greek. But by and large, they both hold to the creeds. But disagreements start to develop. They hold to the creeds and they just about manage to keep things together. But then, in 1050 AD, there's a big bust-up between Rome and Constantinople, east and west. And the church, the worldwide church, which Jesus founded, was born on Pentecost Day, splits irreparably and forever into two. So at 1054, Rome and Constantinople fall out. The church splits into two. And in the end, do you know what split the church into two? It was a single word, one word, split the church, the worldwide church. The word is up there, filioque. It's a word that, that was added to the creed. And filioque means and the son or and from the son. And what happened was the church in Rome said, we need to, put, we need to change the creed to say that the Holy Spirit comes from the son as well, not just the father. The church in the east said, not sure about that. We shouldn't mess with the creeds. The church in Rome said, we must elevate Jesus because the Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. So let's put and the Son in. The Eastern church said, don't mess with the creeds. The Western church said, no, we've got to put Jesus in there to elevate him. The, The Spirit comes from the Father and the Son. The Eastern church said, don't mess with the creeds. The Western church changed the creed just with one word. And because they couldn't agree to differ, they could have compromised. They could have had two versions of the creed. But the church falls out. Both sides can't live with each other over one word. The church is split. It's tragic. It's tragic because the, the two sides are not equal. The church in Rome is still powerful. They, 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 are, they have powerful politics. They have the papacy. They have great wealth. They have great influence. The church in the east in Constantinople is not powerful. They don't have the politics. They don't have the politicians, the influence. They don't have the wealth. Now, there are other reasons as well why this happened, but basically, to do with the might of the Roman army as well, but basically, this fallout, the church in the east is left weakened. This opened the way for the spread of Islam across the east, across North Africa and the Middle East. So those countries... Uh, Algeria, Egypt, Turkey, which were largely Christian centers, now become Islamic. And uh, I mentioned the church fathers, Origen, Clement, and Augustine. They are, they are largely North African people from uh, uh, Algeria and Egypt, countries today we think of as Muslim. But they were great Christian centers. In fact, do you know, do you know that the seven cities of Revelation, you've heard of them, Pergamon, Laodicea, Philadelphia, the seven cities of Revelation today, every one of those cities is Islamic. Every single one of them. This is what happens when the church falls out. In fact, uh, I'm meaning to write an article on disunity in the church, and I will call it the seven Islamic cities of Revelation. When the church divides, she is always in retreat. When the church divides, she is always in retreat. A single word can split the church if we cannot agree to disagree. But let's move on. The story moves on. The centuries roll on and there's more to come. So now we focus on the church in Rome from which our Western churches are all all inherit. The church in Rome grows strong and stronger and stronger, too strong 
and it grows corrupt as well. And so through the Middle Ages, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, the church in Rome becomes not only strong, but also corrupt and greedy. It's known for its greed and corruption. And the main people, that peop- the main way that people are drawn into the church is by showing the pictures of hellfire. Because people can't read, so people are scared into the church. And uh, there's, in particular, the corruption is rife. And priests will take bribes, official bribes, officially recognized. I call it pay to play. If you're a rich guy, you pay on a Sunday, you pay some money, you get a piece of paper called an indulgence. And then for the rest of the week, you can play around, do what you want. Debauchery, drunkenness, come back on Sunday and you pay your money for your indulgence. It was official. You could buy your way into heaven, pay to play. And so, by uh, the 16th century, anybody who had a conscience in the church was crying out and saying, this isn't right. The church needs to be restarted, remade. The church needs to be broken apart and reformed. In fact, the church needs to be reformed. And so in the 16th century, led by a few men, we get the reformation of the church or the reformation that happened, led by people like Martin Luther and John Calvin, largely based in Germany. The church breaks again, but for good reasons. And out of this comes the Protestant movement. They are the people who protest, who are protesting against the state of the church. They are known as the Protestants, who become the Protestants. The Catholic Church as well, we should say this, has its own counter-reformation, and they do clean up their acts, very much so. So now, the last chapter of our story is the Protestant arm of the church from which our churches descend. Uh, but there isn't, there isn't just one uh, Protestant arm, is there, of the church. Protestant churches have continued to divide and split many times over. In fact, any time somebody disagreed with somebody else's practices, they said, well, we're going to form our own church. And then somebody else would say, well, we disagree with your practice, so we're going to form our own church. And somebody else would say, well, we disagree with all your practices, so we're going to form our own church. In fact, today, in the Protestant church, there are 40,000 denominations of Protestants. 40,000 denominations. Uh, It is a sad reflection on the lack of unity, but God, in his grace, has brought goodness out of this. God has brought good out of this. Because if you look around, God has brought a huge diversity, a huge richness of practices in our Protestant churches, a huge tapestry of experiences and practices. Anglicans, C of E, Methodists, Baptists, 40,000 denominations, believing one creed, just as the Eastern and the Catholic Church subscribe to the same creeds that we do, but with different practices. So here's some of the different practices that we see between our Protestant churches. Use of images, uh, idea of saints. What do we call saints? What does that mean? Use of our senses. Some churches don't really go in for this, but other churches, fragrance and and color and and sound, choirs. In fact, if you go into uh, an Eastern Orthodox church, we were lucky enough to go to Russia a few years ago. The, 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 it's overwhelming. The sense of color of blues and yellows, of oranges and reds, the sounds, the fragrances, it's absolutely an assault on your senses. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's different. It's a different practice to ours. Churches have different use of liturgy. <clears throat> 
Some go for set words and prayers, others don't. Churches differ in their practices of baptism and communion. And churches differ in their view of what, what, what does it mean to be a priest. Some churches say, well, the priest is the representative of Christ, the sole representative. Other churches, more like our own, say, well, the priest is set apart, but we are all priests in a sense. So different practices, but one creed, one set of beliefs. You don't have to agree with them all. That's fine. That's fine. We agree on the creeds on our basis of belief. And then we can enjoy the rich tapestry of practices that we see. God expects us to put them aside, to put aside our differences. Because do, do we really think, do we really think that God is that bothered that one church uses fragrances to mean something and another church doesn't? When there's a, when there's a hurting and dying world out there, do we really think that? I don't think God cares about that. And if he did, would that be a God worth worshipping? I put it to you, probably not. No, God doesn't care about that. I'll tell you what God cares about. It's written throughout Scripture. God cares about matters of justice. Act justly. Walk humbly. Love mercy, he says in Micah chapter 6. That's what I'm bothered about. God cares about our love for him. Jesus says in Matthew 22, learn to love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, your might. Learn to love your neighbors as yourself. Go to the ends of the earth, says Jesus in Matthew 20, 28, preaching, and repent, preaching repentance and baptism in my name. That's what I care about. Learn to love one another, John said, uh, Jesus says in John 13. Because by this, because you love one another, that's how people will know that you're Christians. That's what I care about, says Jesus. God never says I care about these, whether someone wears robes or not, whether they have fragrances or not. <clears throat> Excuse me, God never says, keep finding new ways to break my church. Keep finding things to disagree on. That's what I'm bothered about, because he isn't. So here, friends, is the challenge to us. Our basis of belief must remain the creed that we said earlier. I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, and his only son, Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. By the way, the only reason I know that, I never learned that, but I was in an Anglican church for 11 years. We said it every week. It becomes part of you. It becomes an actual part of you. So our basis of belief is the creeds. Our responsibility is to join with other Christians from other denominations, from other churches who would profess the same core beliefs and work with them and love them through it. It applies within our own church as well. We need unity in our own church. That doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. That's a naive, unrealistic view of unity. Unity in our church means we agree on the creed, on our core beliefs. And then on other things, we give room for conversation. We allow room. We, and we can end up saying, I don't agree with you. I don't agree on that. But I respect you. Let's learn to disagree well and move on and move forward. Conversations on matter we agree on, we disagree on, must be allowed and must be welcomed. Friends, we're not at that place yet in Lynn Baptist Church. We're not at that place yet. We have work to do. This is uh, easy to say, but it's hard to do because these things that we disagree on, they always matter to somebody more than the gospel. And that's not right. Maybe for me, I don't know, maybe for me it's easier than for some of you. I have no uh, long-standing tradition in the church. Um, in fact, 
uh, I, I'm, I'm something of a crossbreed. I came to Christ through all kinds of back doors that just happened to be open when I arrived. I'm the son of a Hindu priest who was himself the son of a Hindu priest. Uh, when I left school, pretty much every one of my friends was Muslim. When I became a Christian at the age of 19, I had a very mixed up denominational start. Anglican, then brethren in an Indian church, um, then Anglican, Methodist, and Baptist. So when I find another Christian with another tradition, another practice, I'm always interested. Where do you get that from? where, Where does that come from? Is it in Scripture? Well, please, can you help me understand that? But for some of you, it's harder. If you are a thoroughbred, and, and, the, and there are good things about that, you, it's great. I wish, I wish I was uh, born and brought up and went to Sunday school as a child and, you know, sang those songs and played those games. I would have loved that, as some of you have. I'm not sure some of the Sunday school teachers would have loved it, but I would have enjoyed it. But if you're a thoroughbred brought you up in one tradition, you know, that can be hard that you will fight for. But we, we have to learn from other Christians in this church and in other churches. So to end then, unity in the church doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. It means we agree on our core truths, on our creed, and we hold one another in respect on all other matters because you don't know and I don't know. It means we continue to work together. It means we treasure and hold with great care God's church born on Pentecost Day. This church entrusted to us as Protestants, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox. The church, friends, is the bride of Christ. She is, in the end, delicate and easily broken when Christians can't learn to disagree. But when we work as one, she, the bride of Christ, is majestic and beautiful and powerful. She is God's vehicle for his Holy Spirit in this world. Born on Pentecost Day. Let's pray. There's so many different voices around the world can sing the same song. That so many diverse practices can all point to Jesus. That so many disparate people can accomplish the work of Christ. This is the church, the bride of Christ, born on Pentecost Day, and in which you and I can play our part. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your church in its richness, its diversity. Lord, we thank you for the rich tapestry of Christians that we find across our denominations and even in our own church. Forgive us, Lord, when we have not learned to disagree well. And help us, Father, to hold those things, Lord, that you hold highly, the things that you've told us to do in this world, and to learn to put aside all of the things. Thank you, Lord, today, on this day of Pentecost. Thank you for your church. In the name of Jesus, and in the name of God the Father, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.